U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after nearly 30 years of sitting on the bench of the high court. At 83, he is the oldest and one of three liberal judges on the court. He plans to stay in the position until the end of term this summer. So who is on Joe Biden's shortlist to replace Breyer? And will the president honor his promise to make history and put a black woman on the high court in his place? We could know within the hour. The White House is expected to make their official announcement of Breyer's retirement at 11.30. For now, let's discuss Breyer's impact on Supreme Court decisions over the past two decades and what lies ahead with Carolyn Shapiro, a former clerk for Justice Breyer. She now co-directs the Chicago-Kent College of Law's Institute on the Supreme Court of the U- United States. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Also with us is Aziz Huck, law professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He writes on constitutional law. Hey, Aziz. Hi. We are still waiting the official announcement, as I mentioned, Carolyn, but Justice Breyer's upcoming retirement has been getting a lot of buzz since we learned about it yesterday. So tell us your reaction to that news. Well, on one hand, I'm not surprised. I think he did not want to, as he put it, die while he was still on the court. Um, he, he wanted to to go out while he was still active and well. Um, I was mildly surprised by the timing. I would have expected him to make the announcement later in the spring. But, um, but having said that, I'm also a little sad. Um, he was an amazing boss, and he is a terrific justice. Uh, in many, many ways. And um, I'll miss having him on the bench. Aziz, how about you? Any surprises? I think up until late last year, it was uncertain whether Justice Breyer would retire prior to the November uh, 2022 election. Uh, It was thought that he might want to persist, uh, uh, remain on the bench, uh, precisely to demonstrate his commitment to the ideal of the court as an apolitical uh, body. Um, His decision to retire, though, uh, it's important to say, simply tracks the prevailing practices of justices who have not passed away on the bench like Justices Scalia and Ginsburg, Mm -hmm. but who've decided to retire. Uh, Almost, I I believe it's the last seven retiring justices, have done so in a way that allows for a ideologically aligned president to make an appointment. So uh, his uh, timing, I think, is consistent with the broader pattern of uh, behavior by justices and by the White Houses uh, in the last few decades. Carolyn, Democrats actually tried to get him to retire last year, but he stayed on. Why do you think he made that choice? Well, I think there are several reasons. One is uh, that he actually really, I think, loves what he does. But another, the point that Aziz just made is very, very important to him. He really cares enormously about the the court not being perceived as a partisan institution. And I think the pressure he was getting from people on the left, if anything, was probably counterproductive because he was not going to be interested in looking like he was stepping down uh, at the behest of any political pressure group or purely for partisan reasons. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't take into account the kinds of ideological alignments that Aziz also spoke about. Undoubtedly, he does. Um, he spoke spoken about that aspect of Supreme Court judging as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very important to him to, that the court not appears just to be a, a, a partisan player like any other entity in Washington. I want to turn now to uh, some of his most notable decisions. 
my mind immediately goes to his 2007 dissenting opinion. Uh, parents involved in community schools versus Seattle School District number one. Aziz, talk us through what he said there. Parents involved is an incredibly important decision about race relations in America. It concerns the uh, ability of municipalities to take into account race, actually in quite marginal ways, with the aim of maintaining integration in contexts in which uh, social forces, particularly residential segregation, was pushing it apart. The majority of the court, with Justice, Chief Justice Roberts writing, held that uh, two school districts in Seattle and Louisville were not allowed to take into account race because of the Equal Protection Clause. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, Roberts' glib phrase, uh, the way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. Justice Breyer's dissent is grounded in the history and the facts of race assets experienced, not just in schools, but in residential segregation and on the streets, and demonstrates with uh, a vast and typically encyclopedic command of both the particular conditions in Louisville and Seattle, but also the uh, large uh, academic literature on why and how educational segregation arises and what its effects are. He demonstrates beyond doubt that Um, In a world in which uh, historical patterns of racism continue to have a hold and continue to shape people's life chances, to ignore race in the way that the majority demands is to perpetuate unequal access to resources and to perpetuate the material bases of racism that Brown v. Board set its face against. It is a brilliant and incredibly important opinion and one that Breyer will be recognized for for decades, particularly as the court uh, reverts more and more to a formalist and uh, context-blind idea Mm -hmm. of equal protection that principally places harms upon the shoulders of minorities. Carolyn, uh, Justice, go ahead. No, I agree with everything as he said, and I just add one more aspect of that opinion, which is that he speaks about the importance of having diverse educational experiences as part of the democratic process, uh, project of the country. We have to learn how to be with people who are not like ourselves uh, in order to live together in a country. And so that was another reason, uh, in addition to all the things that, that Aziz has said, that he argued it was incredibly important that these uh, these municipalities that, that did have di- racial diversity among their population mm-hmm. be able to ensure that school children went to school with other people who were not identical to them. Another groundbreaking case. Uh, Justice Breyer took a compromising approach in 2005 in Van Orden versus Perry. Carolyn, what points stood out to you about the opinion he wrote here? So this is a case involving um, the... the uh, a display of the Ten Commandments, I believe, yeah. um, on public property. At um, the Texas Capitol. Yes. It, it was a, it, he was very interested in trying to fi- forge some kind of pragmatic common ground. So what happened in a series of cases is that he, involving these kinds of displays, is that he was, he looked at how long had they been there, whether there had been longstanding complaints about the displays. He was much more likely to be deferential with respect to a display that had been present for for decades, 
um, and about which there hadn't previously been controversy, then about a newly erected display with religious content on public property that was that that was that he saw as divisive. Um, and it was a it was a real kind of um, an effort to find the commonality between between different interests, right? The interests of people for whom it was important to have religious displays as part of the the background to some of our legal traditions. On the other hand, the importance of not uh, turning those displays into sort of a, a newly a, a new thing that was going to pop up all over the country. Uh, so it was, again, it was very pragmatic. Justice Breyer tended to vote with Republicans on criminal cases, uh, but he dissented in the 2015 Glossop versus Gross. What's significant about that, Assis? Glossop was a challenge to uh, a particular uh, application of the death penalty. Justice Breyer wrote a dissenting opinion uh, uh, resisting the court's conclusion that the death penalty could be applied in that case. Um, but his uh, argument uh, in that dissent was a broad one. His argument was that uh, the, the death penalty as it's applied in the United States is, in effect, arbitrary, capricious, and racially biased. And because of those institutional and systematic features, uh, the court should invalidate the death penalty as a whole under the Eighth Amendment. This is an example, again, of, of, of Breyer's broad contextual and nuanced understanding of the world. Um, it's also, it also shows that uh, this careful and empirical uh, approach to uh, the law can lead him not just to what I think is conventionally called a conservative outcome in a case like Van Orden, but can also lead him where the facts are right to a uh, not just a liberal, but a, a kind of a, a, an, out, a, an outcome that is at the far edge of um, current progressive thought. It has a kinship mm -hmm. to um, abolition claims. Um, so it's a, it's a testament to the power of facts and taking facts seriously in ways that many other justices don't. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announcing his retirement. Uh, with us is Aziz Huck from the University of Chicago Law School. Also, Carolyn Shapiro, a former clerk for the justice. She is now with the Chicago Kent College of Law. Uh, Aziz, let's talk about next steps here. How does this all work now, replacing the justice? The president will make an announcement of who he is nominating uh, that nomination will move forward to the Senate. The Senate has its own uh, procedures for voting on a presidential nominee. Um, at the moment, those procedures involve uh, going uh, the, the, the nominee appearing before the Judiciary Committee. Uh, these are the hearings that have become televised and become uh, infamous uh, over the last uh, 25 or 30 years. Um, after the Judiciary Committee hearings, the nominee will be voted upon by the full Senate, uh, which, as I'm sure uh, most of your listeners know, is uh, evenly divided now between Republicans and Democrats. Um, uh, it, it seems uh, likely that if there were to be a 50-50 split on whoever uh, President Biden nominates, uh, there could be a um, uh, a tiebreaker vote cast by uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. Carolyn, do you have thoughts on the replacement for Justice Breyer? 
Well, of course, as again, I think your listeners probably know, uh, President Biden pledged during the campaign that he would nominate an African-American woman. Um, and there are some really astonishingly uh, highly qualified, incredibly interesting potential candidates who, who are who have been discussed. Uh, for example, um, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who's herself a former Breyer clerk and now sits on the D.C. Circuit, which uh, the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia, which is sometimes called the second highest court. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and not only is she a remarkably accomplished and, and has all of the types of judicial experience and temperament that one would would look for, um, she also has a background as a federal as a federal public defender, as do some of the other uh, people that uh, th- that. President Biden has nominated. And that's a perspective we don't have on the court uh, of, of somebody who's represented criminal defendants, which would be, I think, remarkably valuable. Now, she's not the only person who might be considered with that in her background, but I think it would be a real advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we're clear, could we get news on nominees today when they make the official retirement announcement this morning? I think I think that's really unlikely. I mean, the, the president will want undoubtedly to spend some time with his advisors to, con- to consider the, the different potential candidates. He may very well want to meet with them. Uh, so I would not expect it to happen today. Uh, South Carolina U.S. District Court Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs is uh, another judge on the shortlist uh, as well. Yes. Yes, as is, um, and, and she uh, is actually, I think, been nominated already to the D.C. Circuit herself. Mm-hmm. Um, another possible contender is Justice Leandra Kruger, who is currently on the uh, California Supreme Court and is uh, would also be a terrific nominee. And then there are some people who are not currently judges, but who could also be uh, phenomenal justices. Uh, one name that I've heard people talk about is Sherilyn Eiffel, who is uh, in the process of, of handing over the reins mm-hmm. of the NAACP Legal Defense um, and Education Fund. And she's a, a remarkably brilliant lawyer um, and really comes out of the Thurgood Marshall tradition. Aziz, can you talk about just the weight of this moment that the president is considering giving a black woman a chance on the high court? Well, I think that there's a couple of different ways in which this is a a potentially momentous uh, decision. I mean, the first uh, point to make is that out of the 100-plus people who have sat on the court, um, only uh, uh, two have been um, African-American. One person is is Hispanic. Um, uh, Four of them have been women. So this has been a, a, a body that has sat uh, for now 230 years in a way that is monochromatic, or its its composition has been uh, monochromatic and um, gender exclusivist for the overwhelming majority of its uh, history. Uh, moreover, it, it's it's worth remembering that this is a this is a body, the Supreme Court, that for the first eighty years of the Republic um, stood steadfast behind slavery. Um, it's a it's a body that upheld the fugitive slave laws, uh, and it's a body that declared that uh, a person who was not white 
uh, African American or Chinese or um, South Asian um, couldn't be a citizen, right? In the in the Dred Scott case, um, so the symbolic power of appointing or nominating, I should say, uh, an individual who um, was excluded through those through the through the very products of the court's decision making, and who was treated with um, disparagement or contempt, or would have been treated with disparagement and contempt as a woman, up until at least uh, the early 1900s, um, has tremendous and obvious historical importance. Yeah. You know, Carolyn, Republicans' reaction to the news so far has been fairly measured, but do you anticipate that they'll hinder the nomination process like they did back in 2016 with President Obama's final nominee? If, if they can, but I don't think that they have the same tools available to them that they had in 2016. Uh, in 2016, of course, the Republicans controlled the Senate, and Mitch McConnell simply decided that they would not consider uh, President Obama's nomination of, of Merrick Garland. He doesn't have the power to do that this time. Um, and because the Republicans themselves eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, when uh, Justice Gorsuch was nominated, they they can uh, they, they don't have the power to, to filibuster this nomination. That's not to say they won't try to find ways to hold it up. I'm sure that there will be it will be contentious, uh, but it, it, the same tools are simply not there. What are you paying attention to over the next few months? Well, one thing is going to be what happens for the rest of this term. I mean, there are some really crucially important cases that are being considered right now. Uh, the, For example, the Dobbs case, which is uh, from Mississippi, which has the potential to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, the, and Justice Breyer is likely to be writing some pretty passionate dissents yeah. uh, if, if things like that, like Dobbs go, as it appears they might. So that's certainly one thing I'll be watching. It's obviously, I'm sure he would prefer to be writing majority opinions during <laughs> his last term, but um, I think he will be uh, just as focused on the real world effects of whatever decisions the court issues as he's been all along. And, and it will be um, inspiring, if nothing else, to, yeah. to, to see what he has to say about them. I'll give the last word to you, Aziz. What are you keeping your eyes on? The replacement of Justice Breyer will not change the basic distribution of power on the Supreme Court. It will still be a court with three uh, more or less liberal justices and six uh, justices of increasingly conservative uh, bent. Um, what, what I think is important to keep an eye on, not just in the next six months, but in the next coming years, is how... Um, radicalized the conservative majority on the court becomes, how much existing law they are willing to uh, jettison, and how closely aligned they remain or and continue to be to the political agenda of the Republican Party. Um, a justice coming into the Breyer seat, uh, in other words, is going to be confronted with a, a quite distinctive kind of uh, Supreme Court mm -hmm. that presents real challenges for the person uh, in that uh, position. 
That's Aziz Huck, a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and Carolyn Shapiro, who co-directs the Chicago Kent College of Law's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Thank you both very much. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.